Welcome to another edition of the Membership World podcast. My name is Gordon Glenister and I'm the founder of Membership World. This edition is sponsored by our friends at RD Mobile, the complete membership events engagement platform. Now in this series I'll be interviewing CEOs from the membership sector and they'll be bringing insights and personal stories of their challenges and successes. But before we get started, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast just to make sure that you don't miss a future episode. In today's episode, I'm talking with the Director of Communications, Annette Henninger, at the British Orthopaedic Association, about how they run their organisation and the different types of membership. We even explore the idea of a retired membership having an offering. So it's great to have you on the show today, Annette. Tell us a little bit about your own background, um, if you will, before you joined the BOA, because I understand you've been there for around five years. I've actually worked in the membership sector for quite a number of years with different organisations, so accountants and actuaries being two of them. I've come to work for this organisation, the BOA, about five years ago. And from strength to strength, I think it's a slightly different type of organisation than the other ones that I've worked for, but it's good. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more then about the makeup of the BOA um, and the type of members that you've got? The organization is made up of orthopedic surgeons, all the way from medical students, all the way up to consultant and retired people. So all the way through their training journey. So we've got about 5,000 members. The organization itself was actually came about following the First World War. Some of the people who were working on the front line there, fixing people up as a result of their injuries. Once they came back into the UK, they set up the association at that point. So got a long history. Oh, wow. Yes, I can imagine what an amazing job they would have done then. Now, within your sector, do people have to belong to your organisation as a matter of their work or not? The association is a little different than some of the ones I, I've worked for in the past, like I was mentioning, the accountants. You know, with those, you have to be a member to get your qualifications. You have to stay a member to keep your credentials. With the BOA, it's very different. So the people who join just join because they want to be a part of the orthopedic community or to give something back. But you don't have to be a BOA member in order to practice as an orthopedic surgeon. So it's a little bit different. Yeah. And what sort of benefits do you offer? Some of the benefits that we offer... We advocate on behalf of orthopedic surgeons and their patients. So we're trying to be the voice of the profession, which obviously with all of the backlogs for the waiting list in the NHS at the moment, we're really trying hard to be that voice on behalf of patients into the government to propose solutions to some of the problems and start, you know, really look at what different things can be done to start tackling some of the backlogs. So that's one area. We also do provide some education for our trainees. And every year we hold an annual congress, which is actually a, a chance for all of our members to get together and they're sharing their learnings throughout the year. It's the biggest resource for them all to kind of get together and learn from each other. So it's not even just really beneficial for consultant level, but it's also obviously beneficial for all those all the way through their training path. Mm. Does your organization run research at all for the sector? Yeah, sorry, I should have mentioned that as well. So yeah, we do. We have a whole separate sector on research. We do sponsored fellowships and things like that. So we're sponsoring surgeons going out and learning in other areas of the world and in different situations. So yeah, we also sponsor that as well. Yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, lots of membership organizations, they want to recruit often young or early into the profession and keep them for as long as possible. How do you do that? We do focus on medical students and the trainees because that exact same desire on our side is that, you know, you want to get them 
when they're early and keen and keep that brand loyalty and, and that kind of a thing. We do have a really high dropout rate with our medical students and foundation, your doctors. But I think that's just because at that point, they might be considering orthopedic surgery, but they might actually end up going into something entirely different. We also do have a huge dropout rate just because the path to become a surgeon is really quite intensive in terms of the training hours that you put in. And I think people do find as they go along that perhaps, you know, they want to take a different route. Perhaps they want to move into academics or they want to move into research or something like that. So there is quite a large dropout rate early on. Yeah, it's not uncommon though. I know other associations and institutes that I've been involved with that with students, that does definitely happen. You sometimes you can look at yourself and say, What are we not doing? you know <laughs> But it is a factor for sure. And do you have any special interest groups for members to be part of different communities per se? Not really. Orthopedics as a whole obviously covers the entirety of the human body. And what surgeons often do is they'll actually focus on a particular area. So maybe they focus on knees or hips or hands. So over time, we've ended up with subspecialty associations. So we're affiliated with them, but they are their own association. So it's just the surgeons who do hands, just the surgeons who do knees. Let's drill down a bit more about how you onboard those individuals. And you said medical students. So what process do you go through? A lot of the medical students themselves are actually quite enthusiastic. And so in the universities where they're based, they're setting up their own surgical societies. And oftentimes they're looking for sponsorship for some of the events that they have. And they might pull in an industry sponsor to come in and show them how you know some of the equipment works. But sometimes they'll contact us and we'll sponsor the event. So what we'll do is we'll send them free collateral, because obviously that's one of the best advertising, isn't it? You've got these medical students walking around with branded BOA merchandise. So I think that always helps. And then the membership itself is actually quite cheap. I think at the moment it's about 15 or 17 pounds for the year. And I think for them, you know, it's really good value. It is actually probably cost us a little bit. So we're probably losing a little bit of money on that. Just but I think, a bit. I would have yeah, thought. <laughs> yeah, but I, th- I think getting them in and keeping them enthusiastic about their profession, because the other thing that we are also trying to do is convince people that orthopedics is actually the surgical direction to go into. And so obviously we know they're all medical students, but they're not quite sure which type of surgery they want to go into. So we feel like that's also a really good reason why we would want to be in communication with them at this stage. So once we get them in as members, they're, you know, engaging with us, they're on our social media channels. Like I said, we've got some of the branded collateral. We also run like an annual competition with medical students. It's an essay prize. And then the winner, I think there's like 250 pounds prize money. Then they also get like a write-up in our quarterly journal, just like a short quarter page. Their essay goes on our website. So I think for them, that's obviously really valuable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so how are you communicating with them? Is it via email, post? And how do you continually engage with them on a more regular basis? Yeah, communications really in the digital world. So it's email and social media. We've got this app that's like a year-round app that we use. So we're using all the digital methods, but yeah, we don't tend to do much paper-based. You've got 5,000 members or so. How many people are on the app? I should have better stats in front of me, but I think we've got about 3,000 people on the app. And I think in terms of, you know, industry standard, I think what we've been told is that it's actually a really, really good rate of takeup. But I think the reason why is because of the way that we did it. In years past, we had an app just for our annual Congress. 
And um, what we decided to do is when we moved to the year-round app, we actually launched it in the run-up to our Congress. And then what we did at the same time is we did not have a printed program book. So if you wanted to access the schedule, you had to download the app. So we marketed it really heavily. We got really huge take-up. And the number of downloads is higher than the number of people we actually have going to our annual Congress. So everyone who's gone to Congress, but then there's an additional number of members as well. But then what we've done after that is now everyone's got the app, Congress has passed, and now they've got the year-round app on their phone. So what we do is we try to be quite careful about it. We don't want to bombard people with information, have them turn off their notifications. So um, we try to be quite careful, but we do send them notifications if we've got a piece of latest news that comes out. So that might be something where we're responding to waiting times or, you know, something that they need to know for their membership. It's something like that. So it has to be quite substantial piece of news that we'll let them know about, or we'll let them know when Congress booking opens. One of the things that we do differently than I think other associations is that the cost to go to Congress is actually part of the membership fee. So if you're a member, you can actually register for free during a certain what we call the early bird registration period. So what that does is it obviously incentivizes people to book for Congress within that time frame. I think a lot of other associations I know about, you pay as a member, but then you pay separately to go to Congress. So we've been that a bit different. But one of the things that we ended up doing from COVID as a result of the whole lockdown and trying to redo the way we work is now when we held the live event, we record all the sessions and then you can access the sessions through the app afterwards. So if you can't come to Congress in person, we have a digital ticket that you can purchase and then you can actually view all the sessions through the app, either on your phone or there's a desktop version as well, which I think makes the whole process actually, it's quite good because you know you can be looking at a session, you can click on the speaker, you can go through and find out lots of details, which I think is making a little bit more of a sophisticated way to view it than what we might be able to show on our website. Yeah, I know that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, one of the reasons that people come to live events is to network with their peers, as you identified at the beginning. How does that work for those people that didn't come? Are they still in a position to sort of network in the app at all? Yeah, so if you register as a delegate, then I think through the app, you would be able to contact other delegates. You can kind of have this virtual experience of the Congress, but I think not the same as being there face-to-face and grabbing a coffee. (laughs) And nor should it be. I think in a way, you don't want to replace that live interaction of human contact. Technology has improved so much now, hasn't it? that uh, that's why a lot of associations they want to reduce the amount of information that they provide I think that's a really important point that you've raised there because I go onto some association websites and honestly it is literally Armageddon in terms of information it's where on earth do I go now and that's why I think navigating and helping the members through their experience is really important as an association we can often look at ourselves can't we and think well let's just put everything onto the web that would be our one portal but we're not necessarily always thinking about what that's like for a new person coming into the space that is almost like coming into a library in the first place and they they have to ask uh, somebody to, to tell them where something is Okay, so what about the member journey and what's your renewal rate? So we know there's a drop off with the Medical Student Foundation year cohorts. But when we start to look at the consultant level, the majority of the people do leave because they're retiring. I think most people, if they're a member, they tend to stay a member. And I think that's where you get that loyalty coming in for the organization. But one of the interesting things 
that's come up in one of our recent council meetings as we were looking at our membership trends and saying, okay, what can we do to address some of the attrition rates? It was suggested that we actually create a special membership category for retired people because they might not necessarily want to leave the organization. So provide them with a discounted rate that might provide them with things particularly for them. So maybe it's setting up ways for them to meet. And I don't know if that would be something that has to be in person or virtual. I'm telling you now, as somebody that's lived and breathed in the membership sector, definitely do that. I mean, I know a lot of people that are retired. My father, for example, he's in his mid eighties. When he was offered retirement, it's as though he was sacked. He just felt this disconnect with his company. His customers were his friends. You know, so anything that you can do to create an environment where maybe there's an annual lunch or something, I think that would be really, really cool. And I reckon you get very high uptake from that. You know, a lot of the members will be their friends. And why are we just going to cast them aside and say you can't belong anymore? Another thing, if you haven't already thought of, is having alumni, because that too is a very, very good way of keeping people involved in the community, even though they don't necessarily want to practice. So again, maybe there's an annual, you know, the year of 1990 year, it might be something for you to explore if you haven't already. Well, that's a nice idea too, I like that. Okay, well look, just sort of wrapping up then, um, what's the future look like for the BOA? You know, I mean, obviously we're going through some difficult challenges, aren't we, with uh, the, the National Health Service and the likes. What do you think is gonna be on the horizon? I think for us, really, it's one of those things, I actually feel a bit bad, because we kind of were talking about this old proverb of may you live in interesting times. And at the time we were dealing with the waiting lists were quite bad for the NHS. And it's just got worse, you know, and it's like since then, I mean, every year it becomes more interesting. So I think in terms of the future, we've got so much that we want to do kind of on the policy side and the public affairs side, just like I was saying to advocate for our patients and really try to sort things out. I think when we look at the membership numbers, they're quite steady. I think we do want to do more to see why that 30% are not members and really see if there is something that we can do to make them feel that there is something worthwhile about being a member of the BOA. Our new president, she wants to open up the voting. So rather than it being just the senior level consultants, she wants to open it up to a much broader range of people. I'm not quite sure where we are yet if we go up into some of the trainee levels, but I think that people feeling that they've got more of a voice and more of a say. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I support it 101% in doing that. You know, a board should be a true makeup of the membership. And if that includes trainees and younger people, people from diverse sectors, they really, really should be. And it's not just because of popularity and someone has been in the industry for X number of years. I really think these board can only come alive when you've got a real diverse set of opinions. Otherwise, it's going to be the same old, same old, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly true. And I think, you know, I don't know for all associations, but a few of the ones I've been in, we feel like we're struggling to say, you know, you don't want it to just be the old guard, you know. So I think that idea of bringing in different younger cohorts would be really quite nice and like you're saying kind of gives some more life to the association so absolutely well and it's been lovely talking to you today and thank you for enlightening me on the whole world of uh, orthopedic surgery which until now i knew very little about <laughs> so it's been a pleasure yeah thank you very much This podcast is sponsored by RD Mobile, providing events and member engagement solutions used by organizations worldwide. RD Mobile can help your organization deliver value at your next virtual or in-person event 
and throughout the year. Visit us at rdmobile.com to learn more. That's it for another edition of the Membership World Podcast. Please don't forget to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram or Facebook. And if you want to find out more about who and what I do, then head over to gordonglenister.com. Once again, a reminder to hit subscribe. And if you feel like it, please do give us a nice review as it makes a huge difference. So thanks again to my sponsor, RD Mobile, and my producer, Neil Whiteside from Freedom One. And until next time, from me, Gordon Glenister, bye for now.